This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refused to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, our guest today, Dehir Jamel, looks at how soldiers who carry out the occupation see the war, asking how deep the current of resistance runs and what makes soldiers decide to go AWOL, file for conscientious objector status, and even serve sentences in military prisons. Dehir Jamel is an independent journalist who has covered the Middle East for more than five years. He's also the author of Beyond the Green Zone. Dahir Jamal, welcome to Weekly Signals. Are you there? Hi, great to be, hi, great to be with you. <laughs> good. Everything all right there? Yes. It is, thanks. All right, good, good. Now, I, you're going to be in uh, Claremont tonight, is that right? Uh, I'll be actually at Claremont at uh, about noon today. Oh, at noon. Okay, I have I have that at twelve noon. Pomona College for their uh, speaker series, and you'll be talking about journalism in the Middle East. That's correct. All right, very good. How, how has this book tour been going for you? What's it uh, like as far as uh, taking the word out to the public? Well, uh, right now I'm just really grateful for the timing of all of this because in the wake of the Fort Hood shooting uh you know this this topic really couldn't be more important as far as uh what the cost on the military is for both these occupations and more specifically uh the fact that people aren't getting the care that they need and and other really debilitating unresolved issues uh inside the military so i feel fortunate to kind of be uh having covered this topic for a long time now for about the last two years and then to have all of this happen now, especially when I'm in the L.A. area, to get to uh, talk to a lot of folks about it. Uh, it's uh, worked out well so far. Now, now, before we get into the will to resist, uh, I'd like to know what is the will to uh, sign up? What, what's, in, uh, what's inside of someone's mind when they get into the service? What are they hoping to do for the country or for themselves? Well, this day and age, especially within the last year or so, it's not so much what's in their mind, it's what's not in their wallet. Uh Uh, We basically have an economic draft. Uh, This is why the Pentagon reported just a couple of weeks ago that uh, they've had the best recruiting year they've had since the all-volunteers was formed, all-volunteer military force was formed in 1973. So people are joining because, you know, for most average folks in this country that uh, don't have a whole lot of privilege uh, that, you know, the, about the only hope to get enough money for college now, uh, so they think, is, is, in, is by joining the U.S. military. Uh, so that's really the primary reason, although there are still some folks that are joining because, uh, you know, maybe it's a family legacy or they really do want to serve their country and they feel like this is the best way uh, that they can do it. So uh, those are really, I think, the two main reasons, but of course, primarily the, the former. Well, Dar, the the, uh, the economic incentives are very strong right now. Uh, is it my understanding you can get uh, uh, how much money can you get for your education in some of these cases? It's a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of education. Oh no, it's not anywhere near that oh, I'm much. Sorry. Uh, it's uh, the, the current GI Bill is about thirty eight thousand okay. dollars, which still, when you look at average uh, college costs, is uh, not not going to do the job, but. Uh, 
uh, uh, still when, when someone's coming from a family that uh, can't afford to help them go through college and uh, this is the only thing they have available. Um, obviously, this is a lot of money for somebody like that. So that does seem to be a strong, obviously that's a strong part of uh, this uh, com- uh, the rationale for joining uh, and, as you said, legacy and, uh, and such. Also, isn't the military uh, lowering their standards in order to attract more people as well? They are, absolutely. They, they are uh, raising the allowable limit of age for someone that can join up to 42. They're taking people with rap sheets. They are taking uh, uh, convicted rapists, uh, convicted felons. Uh, they're taking white supremacists, uh, even a lot of the time when recruiters know that these people are a member of a white supremacist group. So uh, these are just a few of the really kind of shocking limits that the, the military has been going to to try to fill the ranks for both of these occupations. Now, are some of the, uh, the uh, long-term military people, are they... Are they concerned about this kind of lowering of standards? It's a bit, it, sound, it sounds like they're trying to paint a very rosy picture with talking about by talking about how many uh, people they brought in to the armed forces of late. But there've got to be people within the military who are, who are genuinely concerned about the quality of people that are that are being enlisted at this point. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, that's a big concern. I mean, because they have you have these people that fall into the. The second category that I mentioned earlier, people that really genuinely want to serve their country, uh, generally maybe their brother, father, grandfather had, had been in the military, and you know these are people referred to in the military as lifers that sign up and want to make a lifelong career out of it, and they're very proud of that fact. And then they uh, get to be in command of uh, like a gangster or someone who is a, a convicted rapist or uh, this type of individual and obviously that's going to cause a lot of discord and a lot of problems within the military and it's another big factor actually that's contributing uh, to the, the the crisis that what I see the military is actually in today. Yeah. We're speaking with Tahar Jamil. The book is The Will to Resist Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan and you were just starting to touch on this. What What is it and at what point is uh, that disillusionment sets in? Is there uh, you know a point in time where someone who is just uh, signed up for the service? Uh, is it w- when they get to Afghanistan, or is it? Is there a typical place within their uh, their service that they really start to to melt down? Through talking with everybody that I did working on the book, uh, usually the first kind of point of departure from what people thought they signed up for, and then uh, when they realized that uh, this is not actually going to be the case, is that. Oftentimes, recruiters lie to people, so they'll, they'll promise people uh, anything that's necessary to get them to sign on the dotted line, and usually that entails promising that they won't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. So generally, the first kind of Rubicon that's crossed is that uh, people uh, wake up and find themselves going through basic training and then getting on the next flight out to Iraq or Afghanistan, and that's a bit different than what they expected. And then really the second main factor that I, I ran into consistently is once, pe- once people actually got to these combat zones, they realized that, uh, you know, they weren't over there as the U.S. military to actually help people, that uh, they basically were just uh, causing more destruction and suffering and not really doing anything that uh, would live up to the, the stated missions, things that are reported in a lot of the mainstream media, that these wars have something to do with freedom and democracy and helping people abroad. And, and of course, that uh, does not help troop morale when people uh, joined, really actually hoping to help people, and then find themselves in this position when 
they're actually doing quite the opposite. So, so what you're saying is when they discover what U.S. foreign policy is really about, they... Exactly. Yeah. yeah, they get to see, you know, they get to see uh, for their, themselves. And in that way, they're actually, that's why a lot of these veterans come back home and they become staunchly anti-war and staunchly uh, anti-U.S. military because they, uh, you know, they've been betrayed and lied to. And then they get themselves uh, to see being on the front lines of empire that, uh, you know, U.S. policy is all about, you know, global hegemony economic control of other countries and, and of course has nothing to do with freedom and democracy for anybody and so these people seeing it with their own eyes in that sense they're a bit more fortunate than uh, most of the population in this country who doesn't really get to see that and doesn't really understand what u.s foreign policy really is all about it's an interesting there's an interesting uh, nexus that it seems you, you seem to be describing um, one has to do with a realization sort of a, 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 a understanding of what they're actually in the middle of uh, and then the other has to do with their own personal safety and I mean obviously these are uh, your own personal safety is a great motivator uh, when it comes to uh, self-preservation obviously and the rest of it but uh, what what where I guess where where do these things link up in other words you're talking about people that got got over to Iraq or Afghanistan realize that what you just described is what's actually going on but then they're forced to be, they're there, and then they come back, and then they are recycled again. Some of these people are going back for two and three and four t- uh, 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 tours of duty. What, what, are their, what are their options here? What, you, you're talking about resisting, but what are their real options within the Army? Uh, how can they k- keep from going back uh, if they don't want to? Well, the military does everything it can to let uh, not allow people in their ranks to know that there are actually options. They, they lead people to believe uh, the, the myth, which most people, even civilians in our country, believe. And I did for a long time, which is, hey, once you join the military and sign the dotted line, that's it. Basically, the government owns you, and you have to do whatever you're ordered to do, and it's just that simple. And the reality is, it's not it's not that simple that, you know, you do maintain some rights as a soldier. You, you, you do, uh, even though you do give up a lot of your rights uh, when you become shift from a civilian to a soldier, you do have, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights. You do have a, a constitutional rights. You can uh, uh, question orders. You can uh, get a JAG lawyer. You can get a civilian lawyer. You can, and it, you are actually duty-bound as a soldier to never follow an unlawful order. That's part of the original oath that you swear uh, when you complete uh, uh, yeah, training and you get ready to deploy and you swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution by following lawful orders. So uh, under that uh, uh, guideline, you really are actually morally and legally obliged to uh, do certain things and not do other things like follow illegal orders. So uh, people need to understand this in the military, and some people do, and then once they realize this uh, and, and they start questioning their orders and realize that, uh, hey, I'm not going to be part of this unlawful exercise like occupying Iraq or Afghanistan, then uh, they can stand up. But when they do stand up, of course, this means they are going to be tried in the military court. They're going to be court-martialed. Uh, this basically means a rigged court where the military is going to uh, pretty much guarantee them jail time, loss of pay, loss of rank, loss of esteem of their peers. Uh, so they really are, they do have to put it all on the line if they're going to stand up against this system. But what we see is when people do stand up, like in the case of uh, Aaron Watada, for example, uh, the highest-ranking member of the military 
so far to publicly refuse a combat deployment. He, he did that back in summer 2006. He was court-martialed. The judge blew the trial, and uh, he ended up being discharged from the military recently and not spending one day in jail nor one day in Iraq. Right now, but oftentimes, I mean, the, the, the odds are, it sounds like what you're describing is the odds are stacked against an enlisted man going through this process and getting anything less than an honorable dishonorable discharge, which is obviously a, a very difficult thing to overcome in the civilian world. Am I, is it, the chances are you're not going to get out of this without taking a serious hit uh, to get out of well, the Well, it, it, it's really across the board. I mean, uh, generally I would say that I agree with that. Yeah, that, you know, without a doubt, you're, you're, you know, odds are you're not going to get out of this without doing some jail time and losing some money and, and getting something less than an honorable discharge. But, you know, I've seen everything from, you know, on one end of the spectrum, we have Aaron Watata that we just talked about. On, on another end of the spectrum, you could get uh, three, four, five years in, in a military brig, lose all your money, lose all your benefits, and then, and then everything in between. I mean, another mm -hmm. soldier recently from Fort Hood, just this past May, who refused to deploy to Afghanistan, he was court-martialed, ended up only getting 30 days in county jail, uh, in a discharge, but still maintained some of his benefits and only had to serve 25 of the 30 days. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, you know, it, it, it really varies depending on what the military feels like they need to do at the time to kind of repress the beginning of a GI resistance movement uh, or, 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 you know, what are the specifics of the case. And then, you know, a week later after this guy, we had Sergeant Travis Bishop who refused uh, to go to Afghanistan on the grounds of his having applied for conscientious objector status. And the military kind of threw the book at him. They, he, they, he's now serving out a one-year sentence in a military brig at Fort Lewis. He uh, forfeits two-thirds of his pay while he's serving his time. His rank is reduced from sergeant to private, and he's going to get a, a dishonorable discharge. So, mm -hmm. you know, this, this, which that is actually probably more common than uh, just about anything else for folks who uh, are going to stand up. We're speaking with Dar Jamel. Uh, the book is The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and if, in Afghanistan. Now, let's talk a little bit about people who are actually in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and what they're doing to, uh, to resist there. Um, tell, talk a little bit about this, uh, this tactic called search and avoid. I'm, that, that fascinated me. What are they doing? Well, this was actually the first thing I heard about GI resistance, and I was very surprised to hear about it, and it eventually led to the deeper investigations that ended up causing me to write the book. But uh, I met a guy, uh, a U.S. Army soldier, Corporal Phil Aliff, who was in Iraq in 2004, and told me that morale was so low that uh, they decided they would not basically do patrols. But rather than stand up and take the hits of, of uh, uh, of, uh, if you were going to stand up and publicly refuse this in Iraq and uh, be court-martialed immediately, probably thrown in a brig, possibly tried for treason, uh, it, it's, uh, he, he basically decided, hey, we're going to just do this covertly. And so they, he said, what we did is we would take our Humvees out to the end of a patrol route, we would park them in a big uh, field, and we would basically just sit there and phone in every hour and tell base that we were searching the field for weapons caches. Uh, and, and I was very surprised to hear this until uh, literally the next day I met another soldier, Eli Ryan. Very similar story, different location of Iraq, different time of the occupation. And so when I started talking to more and more veterans and hearing more and more stories of, of this type of thing, 
I found this to actually be quite common and has been happening since the beginning of the occupation and is continuing to happen today. And wasn't there even a, a story of uh, them being able to, able to to hack into their radar blip some way so that the, the base would really believe that they were traveling a route when they weren't? Right. That was a story I heard from several other soldiers, the first of them being a guy named Seth Manzel, who was in a striker uh, combat brigade. And uh, it was basically virtual search and avoid missions where they figured out how to manipulate their uh, location uh, on, on their computer screen, the location of their, uh, their patrol, and basically slowly move it around to kind of simulate as if they were patrolling while they would be sitting in a house having tea with Iraqis. Yeah, that's, well, I, I want to go back to uh, something we touched on a little bit uh, earlier, and that is uh, what's happening to the, the uh, in general, what's happening to the U.S. forces around the, uh, deployment theaters like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, there are, the RAND Corporation uh, did a study uh, about uh, how many of these uh, soldiers, up to 20% of over 300,000 uh, have been deployed, are reporting uh, post-traumatic stress disorders or major depressions. 20%? Uh, is that correct? Well, it's 300,000, according to a RAND right. Corporation report that came out last year, 300,000 out of, I think it was either between 1.6 or 1.8 million who had been deployed at that time. Now we have more than 2 million people have been have served time over in Iraq and Afghanistan, so certainly the number is much higher than, than 300,000. I think even at that time, that's a very conservative. <laughs> you don't go into these war zones and go out and spend any time uh, amongst the population, even if you're just doing patrols and not interacting with them. But anyone that goes over to these patients and sees it firsthand for any amount of time, you do not come back home without some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder. But, but even if that was the actual number, 300,000, we're talking about a vast number of people that are coming back and needing help, and most of them are not getting it. Well, there's another statistic in an article you just wrote, as well as you referred to in the book, that over 43,000 servicemen, two-thirds of them Army and Army Reserve, were classified as non-deployable for medical reasons three months before they were deployed to Iraq. So, uh, it, the statistics start to really mount up when you look at just how not only depleted the U.S. forces are, but how stressed they are. Um, and this leads really inevitably to the, the story from last week, which has to do with uh, uh, the incident in Fort Hood. L I want to talk about that in the context of what you know to be true of what's happening to our servicemen. Um, as far as post-traumatic stress disorder? As far as post, yes, yeah. and, and what happened with uh, um, at Fort Hood. Well, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's all of these things combined and, and a lot more. I mean, you know, we have a military that uh, is in a state of breakdown. We have people serving repeated deployments, going back into Iraq or Afghanistan two, three, four, five, six. I've talked to guys that have been seven times, uh, not enough time in between deployments, seeing horrible things, definitely suffering from PTSD. You know, another statistic we can add to the mix is that 12% of soldiers in Iraq and 17% of them in Afghanistan are on psychotropic meds for either severe depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, things like uh, sleeping medication uh, uh, and, you know, other mood-altering types of drugs. Uh, and, and this is even according to the military. So wow. uh, a very, very critical situation. And then 
uh, you know, they come. And then on the other hand of that, they're, so the military, especially in the wake of what happened at Fort Hood, are making statements like, yeah, we need to take care of these people. We need more treatment for PTSD. Uh, soldiers need to, you know, they're responsible for uh, stepping up and asking and making sure they get this treatment, et cetera, et cetera. But, not, but this also flies directly in the face of the training that soldiers receive because all the people I talk to say, look, you go through boot camp and it's all about programming you into be a mach- being a machine that is always going to, quote, unquote, suck it up, always march forward. You're not encouraged, you know, the, 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 the sociology of the military is such that you're not encouraged to ever admit weakness. If you're wounded physically or psychologically, uh, this is frowned upon. I mean, think high school locker room yeah. uh, where, you know, you're, you're basically considered a sissy if you show any kind of weakness at all, even when it's a legitimate wound, whether it be physical or psychological. So uh, because of this, I think this is one of the primary reasons why most people in the military that do have PTSD, even when it's severe, uh, usually won't ask for help while they're still serving. And then, of course, once they discharge, uh, by then it's usually so severe that, you know, they have a whole another array of problems that they're going to have to deal with. So uh, it really is a bit of a classic catch-22 situation where, you know, folks in the military that have PTSD kind of damned if you do take care of it and certainly damned if you don't. And what is the percentage? I know it's very high of people that are coming back from Iraq in particular with uh, uh, severe brain trauma from uh, from being exposed to roadside bombs and just any a lot of the other uh, activity that's going on. It's a very high percentage of the injuries uh, coming back out of Iraq, isn't it? Uh, it's true. Uh, you know, uh, along with PTSD, probably the second biggest injury is called TBI, traumatic brain injury, which is what happens when people, uh, their bodies, you know, specifically here, your your brain uh, is is uh, Basically, you suffer a concussion, a severe concussion, by being nearby the shock wave created by a roadside bomb. So even though you don't have any overt, obvious physical uh, uh, wounds from that, you you definitely have uh, internal brain injury. I've and heard, so I've, when we, I've heard up to a third of the injuries in in the war in Iraq are brain related. Is that, uh, yeah, is it, that that may very well be the case. I, I haven't seen that myself, but it is it is. Uh, I, I think, from what I've seen, uh, likely to be the second uh, biggest injury behind post traumatic stress disorder. So we're talking again when we talk about TBI and we talk about real numbers. Uh, it's well over a hundred thousand, if not in the in the several hundred thousand as well. Now, before we let you get away, we're um, we've obviously the situation with Major Hassan uh, at Fort Hood and the, and the, the killing, the uh, 13 dead and the 30 wounded. There's awful lot being sort of drummed up about his connection, whether or not he's an Islamic terrorist, he's involved with the Simon and all the rest of it. What is your take on all this? And is is what he did in your mind also, if not completely, some more or less related to his resistance to wanting to go to Iraq after hearing these horror stories? Where, where, where do you see all, how this, uh, this story is unfolding? How do you see it? Well, first of all, even the FBI itself has come out and said there are no links between Major Hassan and any other people, whether it be al-Qaeda or a certain mosque or a certain imam, that there is clearly, even according to the FBI, this was an individual action from a man, obviously, uh, with very, very big problems, uh, and, and, uh, but he acted on his own. So all this other speculation is, I think, being fomented by 
right-wing groups in this country and certainly the right-wing media, and it's not, there's no evidence to, to back it whatsoever. I mean, like I just said, let's cite the FBI on this one because they're the ones carrying out the investigation. Right. But I think that what you said, what's, what's likely the case is I think it's a combination of this guy having a load of, of secondary trauma from giving PTSD counseling to severely affected veterans at Walter Reed week after week, month after month, uh, coupled with uh, him being vehemently opposed to both occupations, uh, coupled with uh, him suffering a lot of ongoing harassment for being a Muslim uh, by uh, many of his peers in the military. I think it's really probably a combination of, of, of all of this together. And then, of course, him having recently received the order that he was going to be deployed to Afghanistan, which, according to his family, was his worst nightmare. And he had been trying to uh, avoid that, trying doing, I guess, within the, within the military, trying to do what he could to see that that wouldn't happen, apparently, unsuccessfully. Well, this is a, this is a book that is really, truly as timely as you could imagine, uh, and something that we uh, need to know more about. There are a lot of soldiers in the Army, uh, in the Armed Forces, who are, in, in fact, uh, trying their best to resist uh, um, uh, deployment, resist uh, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Dar Jamal, thank you so much for the book. The, bil- the book is The Will to Resist the Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you so much. Thank you both. I appreciate you having me on. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.